Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, lead pastor Matt Dean begins a new sermon series looking at the book of Acts. Well, good morning. It's good to be back at 9 and 11 a.m. services. Our 9 a.m. was uh, fun and full. And as we anticipate the wave of college students coming back, I'm so grateful for this season uh, in the life of our church. We're going to jump into a new series this morning, going through the book of Acts together. So if you have your Bible, you can go on and turn to the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at uh, these 28 chapters, really, as the life of the early church, of the resurrected Jesus, and the Holy Spirit at work through his people, how the church so rapidly grows in the first century. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to go and be in Luke or Acts chapter 1 through the second part of chapter 2 this morning. And, and I just want to say, um, just to kind of put it in perspective this morning, that the thought of going through 28 chapters and, and nine weeks, that's overwhelming for a lot of people. But the truth is this, um, if you just sat down and read it, it'd be less than a TV show that you watch every day. You know, so when we think about, gosh, that's a lot, it's, it's really not a lot. It is a lot what God does in here, but it's not a huge demand of your time in proportion to what else we do with our time this morning. And I want to encourage you, as I'm trying to do myself, to immerse myself in this word as we understand how God so powerfully worked in and through the life of the earliest believers of Jesus. I want us to follow that same suit that we would be so clear on our mission so clear on the message of Jesus and so awestruck at how God uses ordinary broken people like these people and like these people and like this guy. And so as we think about working through a book together, just like we did with Luke earlier in this year, this is for your good. It's for my good too. And as we right-size our need to be entertained, as we right-size our need for downtime, as we right-size all those things, I just want to right-size God's word in our lives. And so we're going to work through this together. And I'll tell you on the front end, it is a lot. It's not a lot, but it is a lot. And what God does in these early chapters is, is really astounding. And so we're going to jump into that. But just some context for this. Uh, Luke shows how the gospel spread rapidly from Jerusalem to the whole Roman Empire. And Luke is going to tell us how the gospel went from its Jewish roots to the Gentile world. Now, Luke wrote this somewhere around 60 AD, which means it was about three decades following the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, about three decades in which the early church and its history kind of unfolded. And a guy named Michael Green said this. He said, three crucial decades in world history. That is all it took. In the years between 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion in the world that the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread to every corner of the globe and has more than two billion punitive collective adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, the lives of people that it has touched. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took a decisive route was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women and the Spirit of God. What a great summary statement of that. Another guy by the name of Turner, he this observation that, that acts, it kind of falls into six panels, if you will, or kind of six major movements. And I want you to hear these major themes so that as we begin to work through these things together, that you'll be listening for some of these statements made by Luke. And if you were with us when we worked through the gospel of Luke, I've come to love the way Luke writes. 
because he offers practical people like me and you just common summary statements as though just in case we would forget. So here are some of Luke's statements that help his readers understand what's going on like this. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples and great many of Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. That's awesome. He says this. Meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Luke says the word of God continued to advance. Luke said the churches were strengthened in the faith and the numbers were increasing daily. Luke said, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and the word of the Lord prevailed. It, it, it succeeded. And he ends with Luke's picture of Paul boldly proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that so very helpful that as we, as we look at 28 chapters, we're like, whoa, what's that about? That's what it's about. The church and people and the word of God prevailing in a situation that was very, very difficult. Why did Luke have to write this? One, he wanted to, but two, he was building a case as a theologian. He was building a case as a historian because the amount of social pressure that early Christians were facing was not like what we face today. It was far worse. And Luke was building a case so that Christ followers in the first century could be confident in their faith and who they were following. So one of the things that Luke does as he writes this thing is he builds credibility into the storyline because he wants people to know in this age and in that age that you can trust what he's written. He said that in the early part of Luke. He's writing these things so that you may know with certainty about the things with which you were taught. John Stott, he says this, just as the Spirit came upon Jesus to equip him for his public ministry, so now the Spirit has come upon his people to equip them for theirs. The Holy Spirit would not only apply to them the salvation that Jesus had achieved by his death and resurrection, but the Holy Spirit would compel them, these followers, to proclaim throughout the world the good news of this salvation. And then quite simply, he says this, salvation is given to be shared. Salvation is given to be shared. Jesus did what he did to be shared. Your salvation was given to you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. He's given it to you that you would share it. And what we will see in the early chapters of Luke is that the message of the church is Jesus. Not what you get from Jesus, not what he can do for you, not that you'll be wealthy and never get sick. The message of the church is Jesus. It's so clear and so simple. And in the book of Acts, there are all these sermons that pop up. And these sermons are simple and clear. The message of the church is Jesus. Well, what's the central mission of the church? And we're going to see this as Luke unfolds it. What's the central mission? What is it that we are supposed to do? I mean, Jesus says, therefore, go and what? Make disciples. What does discipleship look like but bearing witness to what Jesus has done? So the central mission is to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's called making disciples. That's the mission. What's the message? One name, one story. It's Jesus. So if you're like, what do I do with my life? In such simple terms, bear witness to Jesus in everything that you do and every place you go. That's it. That's very, very simple. If you're a college student, welcome back. If you're wondering what major you should major in, here's the major. Bear witness to Jesus, whatever you do. And you can have such great freedom in doing that. But as we jump in this morning, 
I want you to know that we're going to work through this together. So Luke or Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. That is a very important detail. Why does Luke include that? He includes that so that whoever would read this would know that Jesus is alive. He was alive. He died on a cross. He was buried. He is alive. And he came back and he said, with many convincing proofs, he appeared to people over a period of 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Did Jesus have many messages? Not really. He had one. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Turn from you and turn to me, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And after his death and resurrection, he was back convincing them, speaking about what? The kingdom of God, the righteous God everywhere. Luke is building a credible witness for anyone who would read this, that this Jesus was not a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a ghost or a vapor. This is a physical, bodily resurrected Jesus that came back and with many convincing proofs was saying, I'm alive and the kingdom of God is evidence here. Verse four, it says, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me, quote, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So let's be real people for a moment. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who 40 days before was crucified, dead, and buried, is back. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he says to his faithful followers, just wait. Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus, how long? And what do we do? Just wait. Because the promise that the Father has given is coming not many days from now. What would that be like for you? If you had seen the crucifixion and bared witness to his resurrection life and you've heard about this kingdom coming and you probably would just want to go wherever Jesus was going. Lord, do I have to wait? Do I have to stay? Because I'd much rather just be with you. Wait. It's better that I go. It's better that I go. So here they are, they're waiting and in verse six, it says, when they had come to, together, they said, Lord, will you have time restore the kingdom of Israel? They did not quite get what was happening. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and earth. That is the theme, the driver of everything that is written in Acts, that verse eight, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, this is where, this is all amazing, but this is where it's gonna require a bit of faith on your part. And when he had said these things, you will receive power as they were looking on to him saying, you will receive power. He, Jesus, was lifted up for their sight. Okay, so that's true. If the resurrection is true, the ascension is true. If we can be confident in the miracle 
of his being his life being raised from death, then a cloud is nothing. And you're like, well, that doesn't happen before. It actually has happened in the Bible before. Elijah, 2 Kings 2. Elijah was taken up on a cloud, and you're like, what, what does cloud have to do with anything? And I just want to kind of frame the cloud morning. Psalm 97, verses 1 and 2 says this. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 104, it says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment and stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. Let me repeat that. He makes the clouds his chariot. Jesus makes the clouds his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. Daniel chapter seven, there was a vision that occurred through this prophet many years before Jesus would ever make the scene here on earth. And this is what Daniel said. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And here Jesus is saying, you will receive power. And as he's saying, you will receive power, a cloud comes down and lifts him up, and he is in the sky. Now Luke says it this way in chapter 21, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, Luke's words are this, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. As we think about this, I just want to say without apology, this is true. Absolutely true. Our king resurrected Jesus. I don't understand the physics of it, but I believe it. And I hope that you can see as Luke is writing this credible witness to the miracle of Jesus. If he could raise Lazarus from the dead, cloud is no problem. If he can let the blind people see, cloud, no big deal. The lame walk, cloud, no big deal. Though completely innocent, yet became guilt for us and raised himself from the grave three days later, a cloud is really not a big deal. It is a big deal because it's awesome. It's not a big deal because he's God. And as we move forward in this, I hope to raise your expectancy of what God can do and what he is really like. He's not like you. He doesn't have to figure out if Jesus' foot is gonna slip through the water vapor. He made the water vapor. He had the deep. He holds the storehouses of every drop in the universe. A cloud is nothing for him. That's like an effortless exit for the king of all kings. But for us, we're like, I, I, don't, I don't, so let's keep moving. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. If you're a history major or you get fascinated by the geography and the details, the Mount of Olivet is Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is also recorded in Luke's gospel. This is where Jesus made his triumphal entry. This is close to where he wept over Jerusalem. This is a special, special place, and you can come today and stand in this very place. I've stood in this very place. And as we read on, it says, these apostles, they returned to Jerusalem from this Mount of Olives where Jesus was taken up. 
It's where he had his entry. It's where he had his exit, this Mount of Olives. You can go there today. You can Google Earth it. It's right there still today. And it says a Sabbath day journey away. Well, a lot of us are like, Sabbath day journey. We're like, that, I can, they, an all-day walk? No, it actually wasn't an all-day walk because the rule of the day on Sabbath was you couldn't walk more than a kilometer, which in other words, you couldn't walk more than 15 minutes unless you're an Olympian, right? And so uh, that wasn't happening. But, but what you need to know is it was a 15-minute walk from the Mount of Olives back into Jerusalem. And as they went into Jerusalem, they entered into this upper room where 120 people would gather. You should also know that 120 people, that's the amount of people needed to form a council within Judaism. So these numbers, these details for very specific reasons. It says, when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and the Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. You just need to highlight verse 14. They were persistent and unified in prayer. It wasn't a one and done prayer moment. They were waiting in prayer in prayer together because Jesus had said, wait. And when they were waiting, they were together, waiting in prayer with God together. We, as North American believers, really struggle with persisting in prayer. If a prayer meeting goes more than five minutes or an hour, like they were persisting in prayer, unified in the hope that Jesus is going to send his presence. That has to do with something of the great magnitude with the power of God came to those believers. They were persisting and devoting themselves to prayer. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 people. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before him by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Judas was the guy that sold Jesus out for some silver, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field. He bought some land with the money he got from betraying Jesus. And you continue to read on, it says in verse 18 that this Judas fell headlong into the field and that his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that the field was called in their own language, the field of blood. You can go today in Israel, in Jerusalem, and see this field of blood. It's a real place. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate. They're talking about Judas. And let there be no one to dwell in it. Let another take his office. And so Luke continues to narrate, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So they put forward two names, Joseph. Now, Joseph has three names, Barsabbas, Justice, uh, and jo- Joseph. So that's the three named Joseph. Joseph, Barsabbas, and Justice, and a guy named Matthias, I kind of like Matthias' name. Maybe they called him Matt on his off time. You know what I'm saying? And they prayed, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Why does Luke include that detail? Simply so that you and I can know today that the apostle Matthias saw the ministry of Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He saw the resurrected power of Jesus. And he's a witness to this king of kings. Why is that important? So that a century later, people can't come back and say, Matthias 
he just made the story up. No, Luke is building the story of credible witness and authority that this can be trusted. That's why he includes Matthias' story. Acts chapter 2, verse 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I think it's really important to pause for a moment in this. When we think of Pentecost, we think of one thing, what I'm about to read to you. But Pentecost was an ongoing festival. Pentecost was a, a normal time when people would travel to Jerusalem and celebrate. And so uh, one theologian said this, Passover occurred in mid-April. So Pentecost was at the beginning of June. It was the best attended of the great feast because traveling conditions were at their best. There was never, listen to this statement, there was never a more cosmopolitan gathering in Jerusalem than this one. Many nations, many cultures, many languages represented. Think about the sovereignty of God over details in human movement. There was never a more cosmopolitan gathering in Jerusalem than the festival of Pentecost. He says it was the perfect time and the perfect place for the descent of the Holy Spirit. So it says in verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, the word is languages, as the Spirit gave them utterances. Now we read that and we're like, wait, what? Wind, fire, and languages. But in the Jewish context, this would be almost anticipated. And if we look at the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for wind or ruah or the Greek word for wind, pneuma, it was used for the Holy Spirit. So where else in Scripture does the wind of God present itself? Ezekiel chapter 37, there was a valley of dry bones. And these dry bones get put together. And the Lord says, prophesy, to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So Ezekiel said, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and this valley of dry bones lived, stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. It was the wind of God. It was the Holy Spirit of God that brought a valley of dry bones to life. Fire. We think about fire in this situation, the tongue of fire resting on someone's head, but fire is a symbol of God's presence throughout the Bible. Exodus chapter 3, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses replied, Here I am, send me. In Exodus chapter 24, Moses goes up to the mountain and the cloud, I'll just say it again, the cloud. You picking up here? The cloud. Someone's on a cloud. This isn't the first cloud, if you get what I'm saying. Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud, I'll say it again, the cloud covered it in six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. One theologian says it this way, the fire at Pentecost 
indicated God's presence just as it's resting on Israel demonstrates unity. A new significance was when the fire divided into flames over the individual apostles, and the Spirit now rests upon each believer individually. The emphasis from Pentecost onward is on the personal relationship of God to the believer through the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, inspired speech was associated with the Spirit's coming upon God's servants. And here are a, new, a couple more places. These guys have great names. Have that memorized? Okay. If not, friendly reminder, Numbers 11. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad, which is just awesome, and Medad, right? So like there's Eldad and Medad, and those are great names. But more importantly, it says the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied. Make this connection. The Spirit rested on them, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad, again, love the names, are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, my Lord Moses stopped them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. It says prophecy. And the reason it says that is because it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And when people are filled with the Spirit of God, they speak. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. This was when Saul was going to be anointed as king by Samuel. Verse 7. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. In seven days you will wait until I come to you and show you what you should do. And when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him. Look at the connection. Then the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. So again, we see this connection between fire and the Spirit of God, people speaking the Word of God. One commentator said simply to the observant Jew, it was easy to see the Holy Spirit had come. When he comes to people, he brings wind, fire, and speech. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of this multitude coming together, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Listen to this little detail. Galileans were not known to be articulate. They were looked down upon in Jerusalem because the way they spoke their language, they swallowed their syllables, and guttural noises were not something they were great at. And who do you think God would use to proclaim in other languages the glorious wonders of his kingdom, but people who were never looked upon as excellent speech givers. Isn't that awesome? To the meek, to the lowly, or to the looked down upon, that God would use the struggling speaker to proclaim the mighty works of God. John Stott says, ever since the early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. 
or the curse of Babylon. Long story short, these people came together. They were idolaters, and they said, come, let us make a name for ourselves. And they began to build a tower to heaven. And God was like, not going to happen. And he scattered the languages, and that's why we have linguistics around the world today. And in this one moment, in this perfect timing, by the power of God's presence, people that did not know those words now could speak those words. It goes on to say, and this is how that we hear, verse 8, how do we hear in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia. Luke, as he's writing this, he's making a geographical sweep of the region, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues intelligible languages that are understood we hear them saying the mighty works of God. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they are filled with new wine. Now Luke writes this narrative and puts the matter beyond dispute. They began to speak in other tongues as a spirit enabled them. Right? They began to speak in other language. It was a phenomenon of hearing because it was first a phenomenon of speech. It was a miracle for them to hear because the Holy Spirit gave them the miracle to do it in the first place. This was not a case of incoherent utterance, but what happened on the day of Pentecost was a supernatural ability to... ...hung up on this in the church. I just want to real quickly just say um, what did happen. Clearly, in this moment, God did give the church the gift of tongues. And when people heard the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their heart language, these people were amazed. That happened. It doesn't matter what your opinion is on that. It really did happen. Some people contend that was a sign for unbelievers and as a means to proclaim the gospel in diverse languages, but now the gift of tongues is no longer present in the church today. Those people are and sometimes are called cessationists. Others argue now that the gift of tongues was a sign to unbelievers, but now it's primarily a gift of communication between the believers. Hey, we should go to the Word on this, and this is what the Word says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. The middle of that is everything that happens should be done in love, and it looks and sounds and glorifies the name of Jesus, and that there's an order and a process and a confirmation when someone stands up in another language that someone else would interpret that other language. So this is not nonsense. This is real, meaningful proclamation and declaration and interpretation so that someone can hear the mighty works of God and place their faith in the King of all kings, Jesus. So if you are struggling with this concept or freaked out at the thought of what, what is that? Because that still happened today. Here's what you need to know. That speaking in tongues is not the primary evidence that you are filled with the Holy Spirit as a Christ follower. The fruit of the Spirit is the primary evidence that you are filled with the Spirit as a Christ follower. And so you can agree or disagree on tongues or not tongues or where or not when, and it really has a minor place in the role of the church. You can believe what you want around certain parameters of that, but it's really clear that the Holy Spirit is most about the glory of Jesus. And if anyone is more about something than someone, keep looking. Just move on. The closing point is Peter's sermon, and I want to just simplify for us this message, and I want you to think for a moment, poor Peter. Poor Peter, 50 days ago, he had said, Jesus, I don't know. Jesus, not me. Jesus, don't know. What do you need God to do in your life 50 days from now? 
What, what could he do in your life 50 days from now? Have you denied, denied, denied? And could you in 50 days be one of the people that he proclaims, proclaims, proclaims? It's called repentance and faith. It's called walking in obedience. And Peter stands up, he answers their questions, and he tells the crowd about Jesus, and he calls them to respond. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifts up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's just 9 a.m., okay? Verse 17 says, this is what was uttered through the prophet of Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, spirit and prophecy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It will come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is the mission? To bear witness. What is the message? Jesus. Men of Israel, these are Peter's words, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him you yourselves know he's speaking to people that saw these very things. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Those are very important adjectives. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, this is Peter's speech, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's speaking as a credible, confident witness therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but David said it this way, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me read that last statement. Peter, he just swung for the fences. This is what he said. Let all the house of Israel, let all of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord, ruler, and reigner, and Christ, Messiah. He's made him Lord and Messiah. This was troubling for Jews to hear. He wasn't just a great teacher. He is Lord and the promised one that you have been waiting for, Lord and Messiah. Let all of Israel know for certain this is who Jesus is. When they heard this, they were and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Can I just pause for a moment? 
when the Holy Spirit works in someone's life, no one needs to convince them. When the Holy Spirit powerfully cuts someone to the heart, the human response enabled by the Holy Spirit is, what do I do? What do I do? That was me 20 years ago. So overcome, so convicted. What do I do? I give my life and everything to him. Some of you have that same story. So overcome by your own sinfulness and your own shame. What do I do? I repent and I believe and I trust in Jesus. And the message of Peter is the same message to you today. What do you do with who Jesus is? What do you do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So the same guy that denied Peter or denied Jesus 50 days ago led 3,000 people to Jesus that day. You have to know for Peter that he was in awe. Yes, that 3,000 souls responded to Jesus that day, but that the powerful work of the great redeemer could use a great denier to proclaim his work and grace in his life. And you have to know when Peter was done, that he was probably like done, done, in awe that God could have used him in that way. What the gospel demands is a radical turn from sin to Christ, which takes the form inwardly of repentance and outwardly of baptism. That's why we celebrate baptism. So there is a fourfold message, two events, his death and resurrection, attested by two witnesses, prophets and apostles, on the basis God makes two promises, forgiveness in the spirit on two conditions, repentance and faith with baptism. Stock goes on to say, we have no liberty to amputate this apostolic gospel by proclaiming the cross without the resurrection or referring to the New Testament but not the old or offering forgiveness without the Spirit, without repentance. There is a wholeness about the biblical gospel. Grace Auburn, as we look to Jesus and the power of his presence in our lives, my prayer is that the expectancy in your heart of what God could do would be on the rise. Like the earliest followers, what does it look like for us to persist in prayer? Not just pray thank you for the food, but like persist in prayer because it means we're in his presence seeking his will for our lives. Like Peter, we all have a testimony to declare the truth about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And like Peter, we can with boldness declare who Jesus is and what he has done. Remember, it's a very simple message, Jesus. It's a very clear mission, be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So I don't want us to lose sight of the mission. Have you lost sight of it? I don't want you to be confused about the message. It's Jesus. Have you lost sight of Jesus? And in your own heart, I don't want you to lose sight of the majesty. What we just walked through was absolutely awesome. So just don't lose sight of the majesty. Would you pray with me? Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.